So tonight, I would like to explore a little bit of the third foundation of the Satipatthana Sutta. And the, I, I'm assuming that most people here know the Satipatthana Sutta. But just in case, the Satipatthana is the four foundations of mindfulness. The first foundation being the foundation of body, the second one being of feelings or vedana, the, the feeling tone of experience. The third one is the mind. And the fourth is sometimes translated as um, mental qualities or, or mental objects. But I'd like to focus on um, the third because I think that we're always needing to examine more about our mind because the mind seems to be where we get ourselves in trouble a little too often. I'd like to read from the beginning of the Satipatthana Sutta. And this is the Majjhima Nikaya, where the Buddha says, bhikkhus, anyone who's practicing, this is the direct path for the purification of beings, for the surmounting of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of pain and grief, for the attainment of the true way, for the realization of Nibbana, namely the four foundations of mindfulness. And the four foundations certainly are what make up our vipassana practice. This is essentially where we have received the instructions to practice in the way that we do, to be able to focus our attention on different aspects of the mind and body for purposes of investigation so we can see more deeply into the way things are. In the third foundation, in the Satipatthana Sutta, we contemplate mind as mind. And I want to talk about how we do that through this instruction of the sutta, but also um, as a support for this contemplation, I also want to talk about how contemplation of the body helps us look more deeply into the mind and how these two um, uh, reflections are uh, uh, a support for each other. To understand our mind is critical because as we know and as we've heard, mind is the forerunner of all things. And this famous quote from the Buddha, which I have heard so many times and each time continually teaches me and speaks to me, reminds me of what it is that we're practicing, where the Buddha says, we are what we think. All that we are arises from our thoughts. With our thoughts, we make the world. Speak or act with an impure mind, and trouble will follow you as the wheel follows the ox that draws the cart. Speak or act with a pure mind, and happiness will follow you as your shadow, unshakable. So what we're really exploring is the difference between a pure mind, perhaps, and an impure mind, the way this was translated here. And we're instructed to really use our thoughts to to 
use, I suppose is a word, but also the way that we direct our thoughts, the way that we incline our thoughts, to do that with care because they have so much power. And as the Buddha says, the power to shape our world, to to give shape to our entire reality. And our minds are so difficult to train. Even on intensive retreat, you know, when we are using the supports of the practice and we have, you know, this incredible place for, for calm abiding without much stimulation, so much um, support in the tranquility and the quiet in the environment, it's still hard sometimes to get out of the mind, to move to a place where we're not caught up in our thoughts, in our mind. I like this, um, this um, piece from a Mahayana Sutta, which describes mind in its most difficult state like this. It says, Mind whirls around like a swung firebrand. Mind vacillates like a wave. Mind burns like a forest fire. Mind swells like a mighty flood. If one considers this well, one will live with mindfulness well directed on the mind. One will not succumb to the mind's mastery or the mind's wanting to control us, but we, we will exercise mastery over the mind. If the mind is mastered, all things are mastered. And so we come here really to, for in a, in a very direct way, we come to train the mind so that we can actually find that which is more masterful than the mind. And this is really one of the very, the very beautiful promises of meditation and spiritual practice, spirit, the spiritual path, is that we can touch into something that is more powerful, that is more masterful than our thinking mind, than the mind, than the the thinking process itself. So we begin to have more control, really, in our life in a more uh, direct way. And here we use the methods and the techniques to quiet the mind, to concentrate the mind, to begin to get some control over the mind. And this is usually the emphasis in in meditation to quiet the mind and even to empty the mind. And we we hear this a lot, you know, that we're supposed to actually have a a quiet mind at some point. But even when we come on intensive retreat, this this, um, adage can really uh, be defied because we see how absolutely difficult that is to really have happen is to empty the mind. So... That's, that, that may not be the, the main emphasis that the Buddha made for his instructions to us, but I think he equally put his, the emphasis on to con- contemplate the mind as a way to reflect more deeply, deeply on our life, not just to quiet the mind or empty the mind, but to really maybe be able to examine what we're setting in motion to really examine the karmic consequences or the karmic inclinations of the way our mind moves. And so my sense, and you'll hear it too in this um, sutta, it's really a much broader kind of contemplation, reflection on the mind than, than simply trying to quiet the mind. 
by using the methods in the Satipatthana, it shows us how to develop the mind to more and more refined states of consciousness as a way to purify the mind of the defilements, of the aspects of our mind which torment us. And as the mind starts to become more purified and our awareness is more refined, then we can more easily pay attention to what arises in our mind, in our body, in our emotions, our feelings, before we start to act in the world in a way that may not be so careful. So this refinement of our awareness, this kind of purification of our awareness, also helps us to function uh, uh, better in the world. And in this way, we begin to not only reshape our own reality, but we begin to reshape the world. In the Satipatthana Sutta, there are actually 21 purification practices. And each one is different than the next. So we can pick up any of these practices at any given time as a way to um, begin to examine uh, uh, this, this fixation of who we take ourselves to be. But before I go into the Satipatthana, first I want to explore what it is that, we, that I'm actually talking about when I say mind. And what does it mean in the Satipatthana when it says to reflect on the mind? Because the concept of mind can actually mean a lot of different things. In the ordinary usage of mind usually refers to thoughts or the thinking process or the thinking apparatus. When we talk about the mind, we're usually saying something like, my mind is out of control, or I can't quiet my mind, or my mind is driving me crazy. And usually what we're meaning is the thinking mind, that restless, kind of uh, agitated, sometimes seemingly unstoppable movement of conceptual association that runs through our thoughts. And that's often what we mean when we're talking about mind. But there are other usages. In the East, the concept of mind includes more than the thinking process. The mind is taken to be the field of our thoughts, our images, our feelings, emotions, sensations, and our perceptions. It's the, the broad field of how we make meaning of our world. And actually, in the West, the depth psychologies and, and some of the social sciences as well have also taken on this meaning of mind when they use it. But in the East, there is also an expanded usage that hasn't come into the, psych- the depth psychologies yet, and that is to, the East expands the definition to further include not only the stuff of our experience, but also the ground of our experience. That ground from which experience rises, arises. And that ground which imbues all experiences and is not separate from experience. The word is citta. And it's usually translated in, in, from the Sanskrit as mind and heart, 
which really shows this union of the conceptual or the thinking mind in something much broader, something much fuller in the way that we manifest as human beings. In the Satipatthana Sutta, it's the word citta, and it is used, for most people agree, that it is used more in an emotional sense as mind state or even a mood where it includes this more general, broader sense of the different aspects of of thoughts and images and feelings and emotions and sensations and perceptions. So it uses that more broad um, uh, understanding of mind. It also includes, in the Satipatthana, it also includes the way that the mind inclines with its instincts and its cravings and its hopes and its wishes and that, kind of that aspect that actually drives the, the force that runs through the mind. So, so, and this is a very important aspect of what we explore and what we investigate when we are using the third foundation for our investigation. So it's much more than the thinking process itself. So then how do we actually contemplate the mind as mind? What do we use for the tool of investigation? Because we can also call that mind, sometimes in the broadest sense. We say, I pay attention with my mind. And so sometimes it can get a little confusing there when we're, what are we actually talking about? Does mind investigate mind? Or how can, how can we get out of the mind in order to see the mind? And, you know, this whole kind of... Uh, enigma that we can sometimes feel like we're caught up in. What has helped me in order to understand that is actually to separate the mind for the sake of investigation into two aspects, even though ultimately they're not separate. One aspect can be called the conceptual mind or the thinking mind, where we include the thoughts and the images and the perceptions the conceptual mind. And then the other aspect can be called the non-conceptual mind or the non-thinking mind or awareness itself or consciousness itself, that which actually knows our experience. So the conceptual mind and the non-conceptual mind. And we're actually using the non-conceptual mind or consciousness itself or awareness itself for the tool to investigate the conceptual mind. So that's how perhaps that begins to help us understand. And so we need to have some sense of that consciousness itself or that awareness itself that is not the thinking mind. And an exercise that Joseph would use a lot when I was sitting with him on the three-month courses, he would do a little exercise where he'd ask us to lift our arm. And while we're lifting our arm, to see if we actually need to think or to use the conceptual mind to know the experience of lifting the arm. 
And maybe we could just do that for a couple of minutes here, even those of you who might have done this lots and know awareness so well that this seems simple and silly to you. It's always good, just as a reminder, to just feel it again. So putting your arm out, unless you're in deep samadhi, and you don't want to move, which might be the case. And then just maybe, let's just maybe not even lift it. Let's just move it back towards the center very slowly. And then just do that a few times, kind of like waving it. And just, just paying attention to, is any thought or concept needed at all to know that experience? And feeling the sensations Maybe the heaviness, the lightness, the intentionality. There's no mind, thinking mind, conceptual mind needed. And yet there is the quality of knowing, sort of a brightness, an illuminated quality of mind that is present and knows what's happening. So in the third foundation, when we contemplate the mind as mind, we're using this tool of awareness, we're using this tool of consciousness that can simply know the experience without adding anything, without bringing any other concept, any ideation, any past, present, or future to it. It just simply meets the experience. In this case, the mental formations that are rising and passing moment to moment. We need to know the contents of our mind. We need to know how the the mind is forming, these mental formations, because this is what colors consciousness. The content of our mind is what determines the quality of our consciousness. And when we understand this, we can understand how the mind is purified. Because when consciousness is colored by wholesome mental formations, this gives the mind a very distinctive flavor. And it's a flavor that we mostly prefer. We like it. We like when the consciousness is colored by these wholesome factors. And when the consciousness is colored by unwholesome mental factors, it also gives the mind a very distinctive flavor or distinctive quality. And it's one that we don't like. And we can find to be very unpleasant. And it gives rise to dukkha, gives rise to our suffering. And our practice really is in, in the, in, as we follow the training that we're given by the Buddha, it's to put in effort, the four great efforts, to avoid and overcome the unwholesome factors in the mind and to arouse and maintain the wholesome factors. And so this is how, as we know the mind and we know what's moving through the mind more directly, more fully, we can begin to incline the mind in a way that's going to give rise to a more wholesome quality of consciousness, which then colors the entire being, our entire experience. 
I gave some examples, actually, of how the mind is colored when I was giving the talk a while back on the hindrances. And I, and I gave a couple of similes that the Buddha used. And I'll go back to that sutta and give a couple more that are more directly related to this um, foundation. Um, because really what we're examining here is how the, the, the forces of lust and hate or ill will or delusion or confusion run through the mind, and we really need to know that. And we need to know when that's not running through the mind. So the Buddha says, suppose, Brahman, there is a bowl of water mixed with red, yellow, blue, or crimson dye. If a man with good sight were to examine his own facial reflection in it, he would neither know nor see it as it really is. So too, Brahman, when one dwells with a mind obsessed by sensual lust. On that occasion, one neither knows nor sees as it really is one, one's own good or the good of others or the good of both. So we can't see into the purity of our being, into the purity of our consciousness, because the mind is colored by this lust, just as if these dyes were put into this bowl of water and the mind got entranced, got pulled away, and got involved with the colors and lost the sense of that deeper, purified mind. This is what he says for for aversion or hate or ill will. Um, suppose, Brahman, there is a bowl of water being heated over a fire, bubbling and boiling. If a man with good sight were to examine his own facial reflection in it, he would neither know nor see it as it really is. So too, Brahman, when one dwells with a mind obsessed by ill will, on that occasion, one neither knows nor sees as it really is one's, one's own good or the good of others, or the good of both. So we can't see. Consciousness is colored. That's who we become. That's who we think we are. If there's identification with those qualities, with those factors moving through the mind. So in the third foundation, we're actually examining the quality of our mental states or the quality of consciousness itself. There's only one exercise for contemplating mind, whereas for the body contemplation, there are 14 exercises that we can do. And there's one exercise for working with feeling and five exercises for working with mental objects, which gives 21 purification exercises all together. So this would keep us busy. We need longer than just a few-month retreat, I think, for that. Maybe, maybe a lifetime of practice. So this is, I want to read this because it's actually very simple. And that's the reason I wanted to bring it up tonight and offer it tonight to really show the simplicity of this part of the practice. So it says, And how, bhikkhus, does a bhikkhu abide contemplating mind as mind? 
Here, a bhikkhu understands mind affected by lust as mind affected by lust, and mind unaffected by lust as mind unaffected by lust. He understands mind affected by hate as mind affected by hate, and mind unaffected by hate as mind unaffected by hate. He understands mind affected by delusion as mind affected by delusion, and mind unaffected by delusion as mind unaffected by delusion. She understands contracted mind as contracted mind and distracted mind as distracted mind. So here, contracted mind is usually referring to the mind that is uh, lethargic or dull, or it's usually referring to sloth and torpor. It means contracted as opposed to expanded, where there's more clear seeing, rather than the mind that is full more of tension. I think it's, it's referring more to the, the sleepy kind of mind where it's, you, you can't see in a very expanded way. Distracted mind is uh, referring to the restless mind where there's a restlessness and agitation. So it's bringing out two of those aspects of the hindrances of the dullness and the restlessness. She understands exalted mind as exalted mind and unexalted mind as unexalted mind. This is usually referred to as great mind. He understands surpassed mind as surpassed mind, and unsurpassed mind as unsurpassed mind. So the unsurpassed mind is really referring to a mind state where there's nothing superior to it, a full awakening. And yet, in some commentaries, it's actually pointing to an unsurpassed mind being that mind of the fourth jhana, where there's the equanimity and the mindfulness perfectly balanced. So it can mean possibly both of those. The surpassed mind is really talking about the ordinary state of mind, where there's many, many mind states that can surpass that. He understands concentrated mind as concentrated mind and unconcentrated mind as unconcentrated mind. She understands liberated mind as liberated mind and unliberated mind as unliberated mind. And that's really the whole of that body of text. goes on a little bit to talk about examining the impermanent nature, just noticing the arising and the passing, but I'll say something about that in a little bit. The liberated mind, though, is referring to, interestingly enough, it's referring to knowing when the mind is temporarily freed from the defilements, when it's temporarily freed from the greed or the anger or the confusion. And it's, it points out that it's a temporary release because the Satipatthana Sutta is a preliminary path to nibbana. And once the mind is fully liberated, one does not need to practice the satipatthana any longer. So in this case, the liberated mind is actually pointing to that temporary release, which I find very interesting because it really points to the fact that we can experience the liberated mind without having the experience of full awakening. And I think that's important for us to recognize that that, that there is a possibility of that that tone or that reflection of that kind of knowing of freedom in a moment where we're not caught up in the 
greed, hatred, and confusion. So I think it's important to notice that in the practice of the third foundation, it does not ask us to change our mind state in any way. It simply asks us to notice them, to know them, to be receptively aware by clearly recognizing what's present in the mind. There's no, there's no movement at all in this, in this foundation to judge what's happening or to manipulate what's happening, to, to alter it, to make it more wholesome. It's, in this one, it's the clear receptivity of knowing. There are other places in the text where the Buddha does point out ways and techniques that we can work with very difficult mind states where we do want to bring some antidote that will bring some change. But for the most part, when there's enough integrity, we can just know it. We can just know it for what it is. And then the other part of the instruction, besides the receptive knowing, is to see the mind states as, the, as momentary arising phenomenon, to see them arising and passing, not to grasp, not to cling, not to identify as me or mine. So it's very simple. You can see where our practice comes from. You know, just this very simple, clear seeing of what's what at any given time without the manipulation, without the judgment. And also to notice that's true for what's called the higher states of mind, the more exalted states of mind. That, too, is to be seen as momentarily arising and passing. And I think that this is really one of the important insights in the third foundation, is not even these. It's not like we're being asked to get somewhere in our practice, but through the receptive awareness and staying with moment to moment, that does already concentrate the mind, that already unifies the mind for more refined states of consciousness to arise. So it is the path to deeper states of awareness. There's nothing to hold on to, not even these refined states of consciousness. So on a retreat, the supportive conditions for contemplating the mind are numerous, but I want to point out two. One in relationship to what Miyoshin talked about in her last talk on, on Friday on renunciation, because one of the main conditions that activates the mind's restlessness is its infatuation with sense pleasures, with wanting to gratify, to fulfill, and then all the thoughts that arise around that infatuation. So here on the retreat, one of the things that we practice to really help this contemplation is to practice wise restraint so that we're not giving our mind fuel for more activation, for more restlessness, but it actually helps to quiet the mind down so that we can see more clearly. We use restraint around our sights so the mind doesn't incline towards them and become more infatuated and desire these sights. We use restraint around the sounds or the smells or the tastes, the tactile sensations, so that we're not continually engaging this infatuation and desire. 
And this allows us to settle into a connection with the present moment that brings its own pleasure, that brings its own sukha, not a pleasure that is dependent on the senses or the mind, but a pleasure that is inherent in presence itself, inherent in just being here, being in connection with what's true. When we contact this sukha, when we contact the pleasure that arises from consciousness that's inherent in consciousness itself, this becomes a support to turn away from the world, away from the infatuations of the world. We find something that is so much sweeter, really, you know, so much more reliable, so much more dependable, and our mind wants to rest into that sukha. It wants to stay home because it's so pleasant here. Why go anywhere else? We don't want to go out after things. And in this way, we're, putting, we're pulling the fuel from the fire, that way that we've stoked the fire for eons and eons so that the fire grows weaker and weaker instead of adding more fuel to the fire, which makes it grow stronger and stronger. I want to read this from Ajahn Chah, the great Thai forest meditation master. He says, this is something you might have heard too. I heard it very early in my practice, and it's just one of those that always went very deep for me. About this mind, in truth, it isn't really anything. It's just a phenomenon. Within itself, it's already peaceful. That the mind is not peaceful these days is because it follows moods. The real mind doesn't have anything to it. It is simply nature. It becomes peaceful or agitated because moods deceive it. The untrained mind gets lost and follows things. It forgets itself. Then we think it is we who are upset or at ease or whatever. But really this mind, this trained mind of ours is is already unmoving and peaceful, really peaceful. Just like a leaf that is still as long as no wind blows, if a wind comes up, the leaf flutters. The fluttering is due to the wind. The fluttering is due to following sense impressions. If it doesn't follow them, it doesn't flutter. So we train the mind to know those impressions and not get lost in them. Our practice is simply to see the original mind, which is already peaceful. Just this is the aim of all this difficult practice that we put ourselves through. Just this. Just to see the original mind. Just like that, right? So the supportive conditions here so that we can actually see this movement of infatuation so the mind has the possibility of becoming more calm and we can begin to actually feel the quality of peacefulness that is running through the stream of consciousness. And another support for this contemplation of mind is the importance of mindfulness of the body. And I want to talk about this a little bit because I think that more and more people are using this as a support in their practice. 
there's two situations where mindfulness of the body is really important as a support. And one is when the mind is quite agitated and the mind states are very strong. Where we can go to the body, move the attention down into the body, whether it's the sensations of the body, whether it's the sensations of the feet or the breath, as a way to move the attention away from that activated mind. And this is not really a way to change the mind state. Even with this, we're not trying to change, but we're giving support to our experience so that we can be more open to what's happening. Because when we get caught up in the restlessness of the mind, then we really can't see much at all. But as we come down more fully into the body, this does support us to be more open to what's happening. And the second situation which can be very helpful with mindfulness of the body in contemplating the mind is when our emotions are actually stronger than the conceptual mind. And you might have this experience sometime where you're just in some kind of a mood or mind state or there's some kind of emotion that's strong, but there's really not a lot of story. There's not a lot of concept to it. And I think this happens for women, actually, quite a lot, where we have more connection with the emotion and maybe not so much connection with the story that's running through. And so if we bring the attention more fully into the body by knowing and examining more what's actually happening at the emotional level, this can help to give more, more information about what might be happening in the mind. It's really just a basic sense of feeling the sensations of our body that brings this very present sense of connection to the present moment. We really feel and know our existence here and now. As soon as we bring that attention right here into the immediate experience of our emotional tone, we're here, we're present. And as we learn how to work with this and we understand this way of being with ourselves more fully, we can begin to actually mingle our awareness with the sensations of the body. It's not just knowing the sensations or knowing the emotion, but it's more of a a pervasive kind of awareness, a kind of soaking of the awareness into the experience so we are more fully embodied in that knowing. It's a a deeper kind of knowing than just kind of a touching of that experience with our awareness. And not not an observing, but really the felt sense of knowing what's happening. And I think particularly knowing in the heart and the throat, the belly, the solar plexus, that can be so informative to us to what's actually happening at a deeper level. And then by bringing uh, and having contact there, we start to develop a kind of sensitivity to these areas in our body that may have been ignored or ways we may have hidden Um, from ourselves by not being in contact with our body. And I think it's this spacious awareness that actually does allow things to begin to move. Otherwise, when we stay more caught up at the intellectual level or the mental level, we're not able to, to, to make the space, make the room for things to move 
through as well as we can when we're more fully in the body. And yet for many people it is difficult to come into the body, and I do understand this through different habits and uh, experiences that that have happened. It's harder to come into the body. And I think a simple practice to help with that can be really just to feel our hands and our arms and our legs. We could be doing anything, you know, standing at lunch or sitting in our lunch seat or being back in our room or back at home driving the car or talking to people or whatever it is, just simply making some contact with the body through the hands, the arms, the legs. And it might sound even too simple, and yet this allows a gentle sense of contact with presence. No matter what state we're in, we just start to have more of a sense of wholeness, a wholeness to our experience. And as we start to come into more contact with our body in this way, we may begin to sense that the body is not so separate from our mind. We might even sense that the body is in the mind. It's held within consciousness or within mind in a bigger sense. That our sensations are in the mind, that everything's moving through the mind, the emotions, the mental formations, the feelings, the sensations. Everything's moving through consciousness, that nothing is separate from mind. Everything is mingled with everything else. And when we contemplate body as within consciousness rather than separate from consciousness, our body begins to be filled with this present attention. We're simply mindful, simply mindful of body. And in this contact with the simplicity, everything can become so momentary that we can touch the inherent freedom in that direct experience because really nothing is hindering the flow of experience in that moment. We are simply mindful. We might say mindful of body sensations or mindful of emotions or mindful of mental states. It's simply mindfulness. In this way, there's no separation between mind and body between body and mind. It's really all of a piece. It's just one taste. We can ask, where does the body stop and consciousness begin? It becomes all mingled together. Consciousness starts to imbue everything. There's no separation. There's no difference. The same with consciousness of mind or, or, or the knowing of mind. Mind becomes imbued with consciousness. No separation. Where does mind stop and consciousness begin? It's all of one taste. And we're just here in that moment 
where we can taste the freedom. We establish a sense of wholeness with our experience in this way where we feel more grounded, we feel more here, we feel more sense of existing. Thich Nhat Hanh says it's like a child who returns home after a long journey. Coming home. Coming home. So we do our practice. We begin to separate things out. You know, we say, this is mind, this is body, this is emotions, this is feelings. But at some point, everything starts to become joined, becomes mingled in the here and now. Not so much separation. So we'll end again by reading the beginning of this quote from Ajahn Chah about this mind in truth. It isn't really anything. It's just a phenomenon. Within itself, it's already peaceful. That the mind is not peaceful these days is because it follows moods. The real mind doesn't have anything to it It is simply nature. So let's just sit for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.